This episode is brought to you by Stuck In Between Card Games. Check out stuckinbetween.com to grab the drinking game or the conversations game, currently at 25% off. Order before October 31st to be in the running to win a $100 gift voucher to put towards a games night. For more info, jump onto our Instagram at suckinbetween underscore podcast. Welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm saying then, thanks for joining us. In this episode, we speak with Abhinav Raj, co-founder and CEO of charitable organization Palmera. We speak with Abhinav about why she decided to begin Palmera, then how she went about to executing on all of her ideas and actually starting the organization. We also spoke about the economic crisis which hit Sri Lanka earlier this year, including what happened, why it happened, what the aftermath looks like, and what we can all do to help those in the heart of the crisis. Now on to the episode. Avadna, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, Sandin and I always knew about the amazing work Palmera was doing, and some of the stats that we found were beyond astounding. I mean... You've accomplished so much, including your Village to Markets program, which reached over 16,000 people, your vulnerability program that resulted in 50,000 people having access to improved health outcomes, and your livelihood programs in which 80% of farmers reported an increased income because of the improved services. And that's just to name a few. So we're really, really excited to dive a bit more into Palmera with you today. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, definitely. And not only do we want to talk about all of the amazing work Palmera has done, but we'd also love to hear about what you're seeing and hearing from those affected by everything that's happened in Sri Lanka over the last few months. But before we get into that, tell us about what you were doing before you founded Palmera. So I was in the corporate world. So I started wanting to make a lot of dosh. So I started in the finance world. <laughs> And I don't know if it was a slippery slope down or up or side <laughs> or around, but I've ended up here um, uh, in my final year of uni, uh, you know, when you put those great applications in, you know, you're trying to get that first job. And mm-hmm. I actually headed out to the north. So the country was still in war, but it was peacetime. Just to kind of think about the rest of my life and kind of get out of the bubble of what was the final year of law school. And it was there that I had, you know, these interactions that I think led to the eventual, you know, 12 years later doing Palmyra. Mm. So it looked like working at PwC, working in climate change, which is the background that I had in law. And I was kind of just slowly moving out of it, like baby steps, you know, like I couldn't mm. leap. Uh, finally, when I leaped, which was seven years ago, it was a bit of a crossroads moment. I was then working for a social strategy organization. I met mm. a funder. They gave me some funding for three years to basically do what we called action research, which allows you to set up your model. Um, and I thought, I'll do it for six months, you know, six months, figure it all out, get back into work. Anyway, seven years later, here we are. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think um, a lot of us kind of have that experience, right? I mean, like my background's also Sri Lankan. And when I finished HSC at the end of year 12, my parents, you know, took my sister and I to Sri Lanka. And, you know, it really opens your eyes to how privileged we are in a country like Australia and the fact that our parents decided to migrate here. But not everyone then takes that step into starting an organization, even if it is, you know, seven years later. 
Where did that philanthropic side of you come from? It was a combination of two things. You know, first, my mum was extremely involved. Um, when they fled, I was one month in 1983 when the war broke out and they fled and like many stories, you know, it was an unexpected leave. And I think that they felt very close to the country. They felt very sad. And so mum, who didn't have formal education, was trying to make it here in Australia. And despite all the long hours, she would have us every weekend make rolls because she figured out the way that she could raise money was cater for weddings. Wow. You know, send in, I don't know if you have any memories of sure. all those aunties and uncles back then uh, when you were a, a wee little kid. Um, <laughs> but we would go, <laughs> we would go and, you know, just figure out small ways that they could raise funds and they all didn't have much money, right? They were trying to make it. They had dollars and cents and it was long days, long nights. Mm. So I think what that taught me was even if you don't want to do something, you just get disciplined and you learn how to do it and push through. So I think that discipline helps in just giving and doing it. And secondly, at the end of the war, there was a real heart for people to give back mm. and a heart for people who are bit more well off the people in my generation who are kind of going into careers and starting to do well and what we found around 2012 was because the country had been in emergency for so long it was actually quite difficult to give money over for development like long-term change type of work because for so long it had been handouts because that's what was needed so what we found in 2012 was if we were going to continue who would we be giving the funds to you know not, not because there wasn't a lot of great local NGOs, but they hadn't been given funding like that before. So they hadn't developed those skill sets. So we realized we had to do something different. We had to basically become the local NGO working with other local NGO partners. So when we decided that, it kind of needed a few of us to take the leap to get a little bit more involved. And for me, it meant quitting my job. Yeah. I mean, I think so many of us are caught up in that corporate rat race and, often have that urge to quit and throw ourselves into something that's bigger than ourselves, right? But for one of a million reasons, we don't actually have the courage to act on that urge. So it's super inspiring to hear about how you were able to overcome that. Mm. Um, For those who aren't familiar with Palmera, how would you describe its mission? So our work is about economic empowerment for those who are left out. So we identify vulnerable communities. So it might be people who are not eating three times a day. It could be women in violence. It could be women facing the prostitution industry as a result of their poverty. Mm -hmm. It could be what we call last mile communities. These are communities that are just either far out or have low socioeconomic classes or other challenges that mean that they don't get the services. So we find these left out communities. And what's really different about how we work is we're looking for evidence-based solutions. So we're trying to prove a model that we're either taking from international, we're adapting it locally, we're trialing and trialing it, we're proving it works. And once we can prove it works, we're then trying to scale it out a bit. Mm. So we're really trying to lead with evidence and continual monitoring to know that what we're doing is going to be making a difference. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll get into this in a little more detail as well, but it's almost like helping people help themselves, right? Like instead of the constant handouts that you were talking about before, this is more so creating a sustainable system for these communities in underprivileged countries, particularly in Sri Lanka. Yeah. And it's going one further. You know, there's that saying, if you teach a man to fish, he can eat for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that slogan is no longer 
true as much these days because if you teach a man to fish, they're still the middleman that's probably going to take all the profits. There's still the lack of services. Mm. There's a whole bunch of stuff in the system that's not always allowing the man and woman who's now been taught how to fish to make money and be economically empowered. So our work is not looking at just lifting people up to economic empowerment, but it's also trying to figure out how you bring the market and these services and all these other systems to these areas and people. Mm. So we're kind of trying to pull and push both sides of the equation. Yeah. And I mean, that's no easy feat. I imagine getting to to the point that it is even now. I mean, we saw you guys are sponsored by DFAT and Microsoft and all of that's incredible. And, you know, you're so well established now, but it certainly wouldn't have been easy to get there. I know it's years and years of work, but could you give us a bit of a snapshot on what it was like sort of behind the scenes first starting this type of organization? So when I quit my job, I just got married. Mm -hmm. And when you're married and you have someone else like looking at your life going, what are you doing? This is not a sustainable solution. (laughs) And so I think it was the first like, oh, really? This is it normal? You know, like you don't just work all the time and have no free time to do anything. So it was really good. I have an amazing husband and he really encouraged me just to take six months off, take a year off. Let's just try to figure it all out. And then Mm -hmm. I had to jump back to work. So sitting in the dining room, I had put out an ad for like interns, like anyone want to help me? <laughs> of course, we had supporters at the time and volunteers, but I was really keen on building a model first. Normally, when you give to charity, you want to give to something that works already. Mm-hmm. But most people don't have the model or the approach yet, right? So like a for-profit startup gets venture capital money or mm-hmm. private equity money or an investor that comes in, you know, mm-hmm. we don't get that. And our problems are very difficult. So that's why we kind of have to rush into the product. So I was like, I'm going to give myself to June. And if I don't get X dollars, then I'm just going to go back to work. And I think it was like June 18th or June, like very close, where um, an old friend and an old supporter gave a call out of nowhere and just was like, I'm going to give you this much money. And I was like, what? Are you you sure? (laughs) Like, Where is this coming from? So uh, that's what kind of kept it alive, to be honest. Had he not given me that call, Palmer probably wouldn't be. The the crazy thing to me is that, you don't actually have a formal education in this field, right? You were learning all of this on the fly as you were building it all out. Yeah, I had the benefit of working in consulting and then doing social strategies. I had the benefit of, for the last two years, advising other not-for-profits in Australia, how to like set up their strategy, set up funding models. So I had a little bit of that for two years. Mm. But in terms of the development work, because I was kind of one of the lead designers along with a bunch of people in country on the actual models, that was all, you know, just getting educated. So going to different conferences, going to different workshops and basically getting your Masters of Development without doing the Masters of Development because <laughs> you didn't have two years to go and study. You just had to go do it. But it was great because, you know, you learned a lot on the fly. And I wasn't, I was facilitating it all. You know, the people on the ground have all the knowledge. They have all the information. They have all the knowledge. I was just piecing it together and need to know enough to piece it together. Obviously, seven years later, I'm now kind of deeply entrenched in the sector. But in the beginning, the role was just kind of doing the project management piece or the admin piece or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're saying you just did those things but I mean it sounds so difficult like it's amazing like Sandon said and so inspiring that you worked really hard at it I'm curious to know 
How far into that like six month, one year period did that call come through? Oh, we said it was like June 18. Before I was going to pull the plug. And honestly, oh my gosh. you know, even to this day, my husband's like, keep going, keep going. You got oh. this, you got this, right? Like, you know, it doesn't actually get that much easier necessarily because mm. as a charity, you start every year with zero dollars, right? Like you've now made huge commitments, but no one's contractually bound to it give you money except DFAT that gives us a little bit of money and they're contractually bound but yeah. besides everyone else so you're always waiting for those calls and you know you still kind of have to be a hustler you know and I guess there's never a finishing line either right there's, there's always never a finishing line that's one of the things I'm learning to know that there's yeah. not a finishing line I mean there's a lot of pressure running a business model that is a charity right. you can't spend money on anything right so if you look at our website we got that costed because I was like, wouldn't it be cool if we did this and this? And, you know, mm. I think it was costed at like $80,000 when I costed it out. And I was like, oh, I got 500 bucks. Mm. <laughs> but we built, we actually built the 80000 version. You know, we just had a very few people, not many, who just laboured through and pushed through. So it's kind of the blessings of all these people who've come at different points in time that have allowed this to occur. Yeah, absolutely. And since then, and we were like, like I said, we're kind of deep diving through your website a little bit. The organization's obviously evolved a lot. Um, And something that's super interesting is the three core approaches that you enable. And you kind of alluded to it before with the fishing analogy. Can you give us a bit more insight into that? Yeah, so we wanted to find groups of people and go, how do you economically empower them? We know you can't just give someone a cow. We know you just can't give someone training. Mm. Actually, if, depending on your vulnerability, who you are, the approach is quite different. Right. If you're not eating three times a day, the approach is very different to if you're able to eat three times a day, but you live in a very far away area. So, for example, our model called Village to Market is communities, whole communities. You know, we work in groups of like a thousand families at a time. Uh, there's about 7,000 families like this in that model program right now. And these are whole communities that if you just help one person, it doesn't really matter because Nestle or the buyer isn't going to come. So Nestle is going to only come out all the way there if you've got a hundred leaders. So the approach out there has to be a bit more collective. Um, and then if you have a woman who is facing, um, the sex industry because of poverty, that's a whole different approach. You know, they've got different challenges. So the three models is our work that we've identified different groups that fall under these three. So we have village to markets that serve the communities. We have graduating the poor. That's the people who are not eating three times a day. And I kind of keep referring to women there because we're adapting that for different contexts, people with high disability. We've done that with people who have spinal cord injuries, whether it's post-war or mm. other reasons. So we're trying to think how can this model work if somebody has high disability? And we're trying to adapt it for different contexts. Yeah. And the last one is called Women Empowerment Collectives. And here we're trying to address barriers that women face, whether it be violence, whether it be different social norms that stand behind how they engage economically. And that's got nothing to do about the cow. You can give them cows, but it's not going to address that. Mm. So these are the three models we work through. And as I said before, our goal was to find things that work and scale them, you know, so we can kind of optimize how we work. So it it is the kind of corporate model, I guess that's a little bit of my corporate background, and we don't want to scale so much that it becomes ineffective and humanless in the process um but it's trying to figure out how you get better as you go yeah yeah i mean building and maintaining a model where you're 
developing these systems to empower underprivileged people seems like such a complex and mammoth task. How does that all work logistically, um, especially being so far from Sri Lanka? How many people support the organization? Yeah, so one of the reasons why I felt like I had to be here was one of the reasons why there are not a lot of locally led solutions is they can't get it funded. So the way it works in a lot of these places is, you know, USA says, we're going to do a program in climate change. It's a three-year program after three years, you don't get the money anymore. So you, if NGOs tend to sometimes fall into the trap of local NGOs of being contractors. Right. They get to have some freedom in the design. So one of the things we really understood is if we're going to have a locally led solution, we need to have a funding source. So it was really important for me to build that funding stream, which is what we've done with Tamar Australia. And all the volunteers are more in Australia because that's your website, your integrations with databases, your legal stuff and design and events. And in Sri Lanka, they're all paid stuff and we hire locally based people in the villages and then we supplement it with technical stuff. And that is challenging because mm-hmm. the people we hire are not always had the educational experience to deliver on these difficult programs and we have to do a lot of kind of groundwork. So right now there's probably about 150 people in the program spread across maybe 50 or so villages doing this work. And then we work with a range of local partners. So Tamara leads the design. Tamara has our technical team, probably about 10 people in the technical stuff. And then we work with a bunch of local partners. There's probably about 15 of them where we'll say, hey, this component you guys deliver and you hire the staff under you guys. And why we do that is we want to retain the civil society. We don't want to just come, hire everyone, and then these local NGOs, can't keep getting the funding and the leadership and all that kind of stuff mm. that you need. So, yeah, it's a complicated model, but uh, yes. <laughs> it's kind of what you need to do, unfortunately. It sounds like it, but you guys have done such an incredible job to figure it out and build it in a sustainable way where you're you know, lifting these communities and not just finding Band-Aid solutions and mm. when things start to look better, you know, leaving only to have them fall back into the same cycles. Um, Obviously, what sparked Palmera was to play a role as people who escaped a conflict in Sri Lanka and established comfortable, privileged lives abroad mm. to you know, help address the aftermath of what was a long, bitter civil conflict. Mm. And that's a decades-long conflict that has gone underrepresented with you know countless atrocities being swept under the rug um obviously something that has made the headlines this year in particular was the economic crisis yeah i I appreciate that this is a really big question to ask but could you summarize what happened in sri lanka this year um you know what led to the unrest and economic downfall and the aftermath from what you're seeing and hearing from all the work that you do yeah, so look, I think um, hopefully many of your listeners will know a little bit about why the crisis has happened. So just in summary, I think like everywhere around the world, Sri Lanka is following a nationalistic political agenda and that has brought the rise of uh, then a government where maybe if there was a lot of mismanagement that was overlooked because there were other policies that allowed certain behaviours to continue, which if you're on the ground, it was very obvious to see, but... I think it blinds, right? And that's not just Sri Lanka, that's happening all around the world. Mm. And then you have COVID and then you have other pressure points which are unexpected, which then make that very obvious. Yeah. And then you have kind of really bad decisions, like we're going to go organic overnight and we're putting no subsidies in place. Mm. 
and just decisions that seem so like where did that come from and then you know there's this devastation after devastation and then you get the economic crisis the political fallout and I think on the ground what was interesting for this crisis is that the rural communities especially in the areas we work in which are largely left out by the mainstream services government you know they didn't feel it initially as much as the urban yeah. or maybe certain um, classes felt it because they're not used to the life and the lack of privilege that comes with bad management because they've always been devoid of that. So we didn't kind of feel it as much initially. And also the advocacy, there was a lot of kind of commentaries around why isn't there more people in these communities standing up because they've been standing up for ages and no one's cared, you know? So I think it was really important that a different class was standing up and, you know, it was a little bit of an equaliser for what so many impoverished communities had been feeling. Right now, um, kind of we're in October, it's a really, really tough month for the rural community. Why is because we have a dry season and normally what happens is you have a season and you can access fertilizers, you can access um, tractors and then you can cultivate and then people can eat from the produce that they have on their farm. But because of high prices, uh, lack of fuel and electricity, these cultivations, which is already reduced because of the dry season, became even more reduced. So a lot of the rural community cannot access the paddy and the fruit and vegetables that they would otherwise have been able to. So we're now seeing a real squeeze. The so Patmara's work is becoming really important. And there's been months since the start of the crisis, but this, we're in another kind of pressure point month. We're expecting October and November to be pretty bad in the rural community. And we've seen a lot of governments like the Japanese government, US and others put increased funding for the rural areas at this time. Yeah. I think in summary, it stems from mismanagement and corruption from the government. But of course, like you said, other factors like COVID were play as well. And from a metropolitan point of view, that kind of manifested in things like high petrol prices and inflation and trickle-down effects on medical resources and food. But I thought that was a really interesting point that you raised about how rural communities weren't as affected initially, given that they're used to not always having things like reliable electricity and, Mm. you know, growing their own crops and living off the land that they live on. And they're used to, like, not having a meal every once in a while. Like Exactly. You know what I mean? Oh, we don't have a meal. We reduce our food. Oh, yeah, we have to drink black tea this morning. I mean, they've lived through much worse, right? So this is part and parcel of life. So when I say they're less affected, it's because that is their life all the time. You know what I mean? Right. But if you're right at the top, then yeah, you're going to feel the fall much more than someone who is already down the bottom. So Mm. I don't mean to say that they're not impacted, but it's just that that's what people with vulnerability face on a daily basis, you know? That makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like it's a good privilege check as well for all of us, right? Because there's so much that we take for granted and are reliant on, whereas these people are self-sustaining and managing with far less. Yeah, and it's hard, right, because, you know, we live in dwellings where it's difficult to grow your own food. The system makes you so reliant on things that it's hard, right? Like there's a level of efficiency that I'm used to in Australia that when I go to Sri Lanka, I'm like, hey, you know, like you just Mm. become used to things. So I think every once in a while it's good to just jump out of your bubble and kind of understand those things. It could make you a more patient person. I'm saying this so I don't have these traits myself and <laughs> kind of learning to be the same. But, you know, we just get used to something. And I think we've just got to be careful where, when we get used to something, 
we don't stop looking outside of our bubble, you know? Mm. And that's kind of what I've seen, you know, through fundraising through this crisis. One of the challenging things has been to pop the bubbles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the bubbles are so strong that it's hard to, and, you know, it's just been a devastating time globally, not just in Sri Lanka, but around the world. Mm. And I think that's just one of the, the challenges of living in such an amazing place like Australia. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, like I've got family that, live in Sri Lanka and they're in Colombo and, you know, they're middle class. So they're yeah. kind of affected in the ways that you were talking about. I mean, they weren't not royalty or anything. So they're still middle yeah, class yeah. and they were still affected economically from everything that had happened. Like yeah. even things like electricity, power outages, like randomly throughout the day. And, you know, like my cousin went out to get fuel in the afternoon and came back at like two in the morning or something. <laughs> my honey was like, where the heck have and you been? And that's a good day. And that's a normal, yeah. yeah. Like that was probably maybe a little earlier on before people were like parking their cars and leaving them there like overnight for days on end trying to get fuel. And these are like common experiences and stories that so many different people have shared with us. What was maybe a more surprising story that you heard or something that you hadn't thought about would be a ripple effect as a result of this economic crisis that maybe you heard from one of your staff that work on the ground there? Well, it wasn't surprising, but we had to respond differently with the increasing level of violence. We saw it during Mm. COVID, but we had to do a lot more work on the rising gender violence. So we've hired um, counsellors into our program and we've had to kind of pivot on how we address uh, as I said, we spun off an adaptation of one of the models, as I mentioned, with the 100. Mm-hmm. So women facing more extreme forms of violence within the domestic household because of increased economic pressure and increasing abuse of alcohol just out of sheer desperation. So it, it wasn't surprising because we, we know that the correlation. We saw it during COVID, but how much we have to step it up and pivot quite significantly was unexpected because all the services stopped, all the services weren't that strong. If you think of things like um, people who visit psychiatrists and uncertain medications who are from poorer areas who can't now access this critical medication, Mm. the impact of lack of medication and access to medication and how that flows through to communities and households and economic, you know, that relationship we had to kind of deep dive into more as well and so we had to kind of pivot on a lot of programming to address that so these weren't surprising but then you know all the ways that it starts to expand and express itself the way we had to pivot was Mm. a little bit more than I expected and also you know sometimes we're serving so many people that we have to always remember that our staff have a level of vulnerability because they're from the villages themselves Mm. So another thing was just the challenges that our staff had to go through, yep, yep. not just getting fuel, but those challenges playing out in their homes and in their relationships and how that impacts. I mean, if you are not full, how do you serve under these extreme conditions? So mm. we had to grapple with how do this type of person work under these type of conditions when they have so much that they have to burden as well so once again we've had to do a lot of work around that Mm. because we hire a lot of people who are excelling in the programs and then we hire them into our team so they're actually like participants who we see are like can come up it might be a mother who's got a daughter who dropped out in 10 because she couldn't afford to go to university, but she's participating in the dairy program and then we'll hire her into our program. So they're kind of coming from quite a vulnerable community 
and a vulnerable context. So we've had to kind of think of that. So these are some examples that have created a lot of complexity in the last three years that we've been working. Yeah, for sure. And like we said, Sri Lanka has a very complex history, not just in the past 10 months, but also the last 40, 50 years. And that's something that Romy and I might come back to and deep dive into in a future episode. Uh, But to bring it back to Palmera, what kind of work has Palmera been involved with to help those affected by this current economic crisis? Yes. So what we've done is on top of our existing programs, those models and everything we spoke about, there are five interventions that we're doing across 5,000 families. So we've taken 5,000 families that we've worked with, that we know, that we understand their vulnerability in the impoverished areas that covers 20,000 people. And it's 5,000 women that's being led through a women-led program. And we didn't see as much financial flows and aid coming to Sri Lanka because there's global crises around the world. And also people are a bit fatigued, right, from giving because COVID. Mm-hmm. And so what we really wanted to do is set up these women to know how to, if this happens again, another crisis, how, how do you stand on your own two feet? Mm-hmm. So we have these 5,000 women in what we call village bank instructions. So they meet weekly in groups of 20 and The first thing we did is we provided a loan so that women can decide collectively how they can purchase paddy store food through the tough two months ahead, but they get to decide how they do it. And we provided an amount that was something equivalent to what we believe they could save over five years with a little bit of top up, which means in five years time, if there was no one giving money for them, you know, no aid coming in, we're teaching them the skills to go, okay, what we're training you on today, you're going to have the resources to do it yourself in five years, right? So when you come into a crisis, how do you think about collective buying? How do you know who is the poorest in your group? How do you know how to give it to them and not give, you know, like you've got to kind of protect the collective because it's a safety net. And so what that allows people to do, when I say alone, it's interest-free, it's got a very long payback period, but we wanted to do that so it's in the structure of what they will have access to. And it doesn't duplicate all the handouts that may be coming through government support and other ways, though there's not that much of that. But this is a long crisis. They need to kind of be planning for the future. So amazing things have happened through that. Women have gone, look, I think we can get through this next week, but in three weeks we're going to have a problem. So this planning together has been amazing, you know, just to see how they've done that. But that's been a big program. Um, the second one is home garden. So that's critical. Everyone, we've got 5,000 women who with their families are doing home gardens. Now that sounds easy, home gardens, super difficult because there's no access to seeds, there's no access to seedlings, mm-hmm. there's got to be village-based nurseries and there's no governments providing technical services. So there's a lot of challenges in just having women successfully cultivate these home gardens Mm. um the third thing is we've done poultry grants so we want every woman to at least have five chicks in their home Mm -hmm. so in these women village based structures we've said one woman rear chickens and buy it off her so that means the money goes back into the system and then everyone has chicks that's the third thing and then uh the fourth thing is we've done emergency cash vouchers for critical medical needs Mm -hmm. and the last thing is if anyone's not eating three times a day, there's food that's just being given to kind of get them through that period until they can kind of catch the other four modalities. So it's a pretty extensive program. And one thing amazing is we actually developed an app, uh, which we got live. Amazing. And I posted about it today, but there will be an Insta story coming. (laughs) uh, But we developed an app. So, And the app is amazing because weekly the women leaders are recording through this app how everyone's doing, how they're eating, what's happening. 
and we get live data. And then if there's a problem and the five modalities are not working, our team can go and figure it out. And on a daily basis, we know whose children are not eating, whose critical needs are not being met. And they are setting it weekly. So we're getting 5,000 data points every week. Um, It's been a pretty huge program um, to get an app going and to get it out there and train everyone. Um, There's been a lot of hiccups along the road, but, you know, we're getting this strong. Wow, that's just like just hearing you talk about all the things that you guys have put into place, even just in light of the more recent economic crisis. Like you would think they would just take so long to execute. But how do you, I guess, like come up with, okay, this is our crisis plan for this particular economic crisis that's going on at the moment because you obviously started Palmera well before this year and the current economic crisis it's not like you started it because of what's happened this year it was already existing so how do you figure out how to pivot in that way and rejig your services or like add more things on to help with the current climate how does that work is it because of the people on the ground who can give you like insights to what they think will work yeah, so, you know, we see ourselves as development specialists. You know, this is what we do when we're building our structures. Mm-hmm. The groups of the women in these 20 village banks, that happened before. That's just part of our good development work. So we've built a lot of the foundations because we're there long term. And we've, we've got geographical strategies. We're in these particular areas. We've got these relationships. And so I think when crises happen like this or COVID or whether it's a flood or a drought, we can build off these things and kind of have mm. the learning. And I also was able to convince one of our volunteers to quit his job and start full time as well. So, <laughs> and he manages all the apps and, you know, he had an actuary background and he does all the analytics and, you know, manages app development and all bunch of stuff. Wow. So, you know, things like that as well are critical because if he didn't take the leap, we never would be in the position that we are now. His name's Abi Pasak and, um, yeah, he's a critical person. Yeah, shout out to Abi. Shout out to Abi. Great work. <laughs> um, you've obviously spoken about all of the powerful work that Palmera does and I know you, you've been doing this for such a long time and you make multiple trips back home to make sure that things are running smoothly. Where you're comfortable, could you share with us a story or two that, has really stood out or resonated with you across all the years that you have been doing this charitable work? Yeah, look, I think um, there's so many. There's kind of thousands and thousands. Um, but just one, as you said, that strikes me um, was this lady. When we first piloted this program, she came to the program and she said, I can't do it. It looks risky. You guys are going to leave. I'm not going to kind of change all my practices and then you guys kind of leave. So she left the first training program that we did in the village, but she would come and like peer through, you know, and just kind of <laughs> see what was happening. And then because we have locally based staff, they would go to her house. They knew each other and they would go to her house and do all the training all over again for her one-on-one <laughs> because they knew she had left. And her brother had actually got on a boat and come to Australia. And so it was in the detention center. And she was kind of sharing that while her whole family was at fear of persecution, the journey that she's been on, she was about to get on the boat as well. And she decided not to get on the boat. She had two young children and she made a last minute decision not to get on the boat. Um, that came with its own set of fears, but also economic challenges that without some of the men in her family had to kind of stand up. And, you know, today she's a leader in the community. She's one of the richer people in the community today with herds of cattle, her 
think she's got like 10 acres that she's cultivating on now. When we met her, she had zero, that huge figure from zero to 10. She hires a whole bunch of people to work her land from the community and she hires women and then like treats them so respectfully. When I was last there, she had all these women who were pregnant and she was like putting them in the right places so they could sit in the shade and she was like doing half their work so that they could work while pregnant, you know, because Mm. you need to still work, right? And so because she had been through that hardship, the way she was just organizing, you know, this community of people that she was now hiring. So to me, those are the stories where like life has already had so many of these sliding door moments Mm. Uh, but when she was reflecting on her brother and kind of getting on the boat and kind of saying I'm I'm so glad I didn't get on that boat because life isn't always so great if you get on a boat and come to a place like Australia given our current you know policies in place Um, and so that that gives me hope that life can be better Mm. Um, but another story that stands out and you know we like to hear the the positive story you know where it all all ends well um we meet so many people and it's their their past and how that impacts how they can move forward you know that also just stays with you you know there was a, a young family that I met and the girl was 12 years old at the time and she had gone through the final days of the final battle at the end of the war the hiding place that her her mum and her sister were at had been bombed her mother and father hadn't made it and her and her sister kind of lay next to her parents' bodies for three days. And they were crying and screaming, but no one had come. Obviously, it was a, an active war and people, you know, had to take shelter. And people didn't know, you know, and so we don't know what happened in, the, in those moments. But I heard the story from the mother who then adopted this 12-year-old. And she was one of the ladies who was nearby. And she talks about the screams of these two children and how it haunts her to this day. And for three days, she hears these screams. But her husband says, what can we do? We have three children of our own. We don't know if they're hurt. We have to move on. We have to keep safety. And she kept wanting to go. You know, she kept wanting to go. She doesn't know what's happening in this tent, but she's hearing these screams. The 12-year-old then goes to get food, realizing that no one's going to come to help her and her sister. And the four-year-old is asking for rice. We don't know how many days, weeks they had been without proper food. And at that time, there were places where kanji was being available. Kanji is like the, the broth of when you wash the rice and you can put a few things. It's kind of high in protein, so there were points. So she had travelled to try to find some of this kanji and brought it back. Days had passed. And unfortunately, when she had come back, her sister had passed. And so she kind of held you know, this sister and continue to scream. And you could imagine a 12-year-old having to kind of go through all of that on top of everything that she'd already been through. Um, and then after a while, she just stopped screaming. It was at that point that the mother, who was in the nearby tent, had to run over to see what had happened. I guess she'd assumed by this point that they'd all passed. She runs over. She sees this 12-year-old holding, you know, these three people, these three dead bodies in her arms. And at that point, the mother takes the 12-year-old. Uh, I meet them several years later. She's adopted this 12-year-old. And as I'm speaking to them, you know, they're sharing the story. The mother, ridden with guilt, that, you know, why she didn't act differently. She could have done something. And the 12-year-old, barely able to say a word, can't smell rice. Rice can't be in anywhere near. And that's difficult in a place like Sri Lanka. You know, I share that story because sometimes we like to have this quick feel good. You know, you do this program, 
everything's fine, you give a couple of things. But in the communities we work with, trauma is so deep. It's so deep. The things people went through, you don't come out of that and just move forward. Not everyone can and not everyone will. And in the communities we work with, we talk about economic empowerment, but that's the biggest thing we're struggling with and we're working through and that takes time. Um, and so not everyone's going to have that story, you know, the one that I gave before with the lady with the cattle herd. Not everyone's going to have that story. There will be many, as you know, that in the north has got the highest rates of youth suicide. Um, there's very high rates of addiction and there's going to be a lot of challenges. So I think Palmera wanted to do this work because I think the community's at a crossroads. If you leave this for a generation, it becomes entrenched. But if you can take enough people out of it, there's some movement, right? And so we just wanted to do this now because I think it's the time. Thank you so much for sharing that, Abanaka. And while that is such a heartbreaking story, what's even more heartbreaking is that it's not an uncommon one. It's just one of the hundreds of thousands of similar stories, which is why your work is ever more important. Um, I feel like when we hear these stories, there's a sense of guilt that, you know, we were the lucky ones that made it out because of the privileges that we had, but also the sense of responsibility to use that privilege to give back. Mm. And something we spoke about off air is about how there's a need for people to get involved. And I think sometimes there's this assumption that what that requires is either writing a check or working in the sector full time, which is just not the case, right? There's so many different ways that we can get involved and support. For anyone who's listening who wants to help out, how can they get involved? What kind of work would benefit Palmera? What are the kind of next steps that they can take? The checks are good, right? <laughs> so, um, and, and, and I say that because I think sometimes my experience is people want to get involved and they don't always lead with the financial support. You don't need to do one or the other. You can keep doing the financial support because none of this happens without financial support. So my first thing is become a monthly giver because we stay in communities for five years because we have long-term givers. So jump onto our website, www.pomari.org and become a monthly giver. And secondly, I would say try to use your skill set in some way if you want to get more involved with us. So if you are great at marketing, you're great at finance, you know, you're an accountant. If you can give three hours a week, right? Mm -hmm. If you've got one night a week that you can say, I don't care what happens, Tuesday night, it's the night. You know, I'm going to give my time every Tuesday night. If you can get to a point where you think you can do something like that and be disciplined around it, because so I think if you can be somebody who feels you can be disciplined into giving one night a week and you have some skill set, whatever it is, like mm. I can do a social media post, like social media posts are done by volunteers, yeah. you know, and coding something, doing it in a newsletter, whatever it may be. So that's the second thing. And the last thing is if you don't fall into the first or second category, like if it's your birthday, instead of asking for gifts, ask for donations. Jump on our website, set up a campaign. That's a very like, you know, it's one off, one a year thing. You want to run city to surf, you know, raise funds for Tamara. You know, if you want to, whatever it may be, it could just be you're a yoga teacher. You want to do a yoga class. We recently had um, Harry Morgan, one of our supporters, who is a dentist, and he attends, you know, these professional development courses, and he thought, hey. I'll run a professional development course. And it was a one-day workshop and he raised $48,000, which is massive. And you don't need to raise 48000 You don't need to raise 48000 right? You could raise $200, 
because that's also amazing. And when you raise 200, you learn to raise 400, and then you mm. learn to raise 600, and then one day you learn to raise 40,000. Because the first thing I ever did was selling chocolate at a shopping mall, and I raised 10 bucks, <laughs> you know? And that's how it begins. You don't just get to a point where rejection is super easy, <laughs> you know? Like, you, you kind of build a muscle of hearing no a lot, and you get comfortable with it, and it's fine. The world goes on. You know, so it's literally anything. It's whatever presents to you and just thinking about it and kind of stepping out of your world wherever you can. Yeah, just on that second point that you raised on if someone can spare their time and skills, Yeah, what's the best way of getting in touch? Is it website or is it Instagram? Anything, yeah. Insta, website, we have a volunteer form or Insta, you can um, just DM us and, yeah, we'll get back to you. Translators, you know. My main thing is you've got to be able to be in a point where you think, I can give a night a week, you know, because that's the hard thing about running a charity where we're trying to drive quality. If, if you think, oh, I can do like an hour a month, you're probably not going to be able to do much for an hour a month, to be honest, right? Like unless mm-hmm. you're like, I don't know, got very niche skill set. Like we have somebody who's like a super coder. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a night a week I think is, is a good, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and like you described, like it doesn't have to be even committing to that, right? Like even just instead of getting birthday presents exactly. saying, hey, like yeah. can you donate to yeah. this? Like that just sounds so simple. Like yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't realise that they can do something as little as that, like you said, once a year. It's a baby shower. Money for this. Or like for Father's exactly. Day or Mother's Father's Day. Day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's so many ways. Small yeah. effort, big payoff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And for, you know, follow us on Insta because, you know, we're trying to share more about what we do. We haven't been so good at that because we've been so busy and you need volunteers to help you share it <laughs> so that's the challenge but um we're trying to get better at it because i think there's a lot going on so follow us on insta and you can hear and see more of these opportunities and you know, just hit us up i find so we don't pursue people to volunteer necessarily all the right. time uh, we kind of wait for people to come to us and we literally build our strategy around it so we have a strong mm-hmm. like app strategy because we had those type of people come to us um, right. So that's yeah. how kind of we build our strategy on people. Yeah, incredible. I mean, obviously, you guys have already done so much this year, and you've just talked about how you've launched the app. And we're going to a screening of your documentary um, in a couple of days as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the documentary, maybe a bit of a teaser and like a sentence, and also what's next for Palmera? Yeah, so we wanted to share the impact of change. What better way than to show one year after we've left these villages what it looks like and what people are saying. So the documentary, you know, goes through these communities, about 3,000 people, which is the area. Maybe there's over 100 people who speak on the documentary and just what what it looks like now. And this is after fears of COVID, economic crisis, and then we kind of arrived one year later. We exited it a year ago and we wanted to kind of share what's possible um, because we can't take everyone to the village You can't kind of explain all these dimensions. Of course. So we, we've done quite a few screenings throughout the year. And uh, following that, we will have a live link so people can check it out. And what we're up to, which the documentary also shares, is for this particular model and our other models, they're working well. We're proving their success. So we have a goal to reach 35,000 people in the next five years. Wow. Incredible. And we're really looking forward to watching the documentary as well. I mean, we saw the trailer and we were already so moved by it. So really looking forward to that. And um, yeah, really awesome to see you guys just continue to grow and want to make more of an impact and not 
get complacent I guess or not just stay still in one place like I think it's awesome because sometimes like it's so hard right to keep pushing and keep moving and keep expanding like just from an hour of talking to you like it's just so much work but it's awesome to see how well it's worked out um, with having people on the ground and your relentless pushing as well as all of the volunteers that work with you as well. Yeah and I I would say it will be what the universe brings to us you know like it will be what we are so I think we're just kind of leaning into what comes to us, you know, and being responsive to that. There's so many problems. But if if we don't, you know, can't get the funding or we can't get the people, then we'll be something else, you know. We'll always be effective. Yeah. But I think, you know, we have to respond to where people are at as well. Mm. Um, and I think the tide has changed a little bit. There's a strong growth in identity, but I'm not sure how much that identity is kind of feeding into that humanitarian giving, which we want to spark, but we also know what what we can do and I think part of our journey in Palmyra is just be really niche and be really good and kind of let the universe bring what it brings for sure I love it thank you so much I think we could talk to you for for hours on end but really appreciate you coming on we'll do our best to do what we can to help push and we'll put all of your links and stuff in our show notes as well and encourage people to do what they can um, even in their small way to help because yeah you're doing amazing things with Palmyra so thank you Thanks, guys. Nice chatting. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We hope you learned something from this episode. It's definitely inspired us to contribute in our small way. If you'd like to contribute or get involved yourself in any way you can, Palmera's links are in the show notes. So check out their work and get in touch. Follow them on Instagram at Palmera Projects. And as always, you can find us on Instagram at stuckinbetween underscore podcast. We post episode updates, highlights, reels and other funny or what we think is funny and entertaining and educational content on there. We'll see you next time. Bye.